Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You ready to go to Portugal? Yeah, NDC is coming to Porto February 26th to March 1st. We'll be there checking out the sites and recording some .NET Rocks episodes. So come and hang with us by registering at ndcporto.com. And get this, NDC is also coming to Copenhagen, March 27th through 29th at DGIBN. It's two days of workshops and a one-day conference. Go to ndcmini.com to learn more. And NDC is coming back to America. Back at the St. Paul River Center in Minneapolis, May 6th to 9th. That's the one. And they're offering early bird pricing if you register before February 15th. So go to ndcminnesota.com to register today. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we're in our uh, cave in some back room at the Queen Elizabeth This Center. is room 3 slash 12 uh, in the Queen Elizabeth Theater. Yeah, it's a box. It's and a box. Sounds yeah. like a box. View of the of Westminster Abbey. Yeah. Uh, it's beautiful. Yeah. And it's lovely. Always good to be in London. The, apparently, the weather's nicer here than it is back home. Oh, yeah. Apparently, it's winter back in North America. Yeah. And, and then some. Anyway, Steve Sanderson and Dan Roth are here. We're going to be talking to them about Blazor in just a few minutes. But first, we've got a couple of things to do, starting with Better Know a Framework. Awesome. Roll the crazy music. All right, man, what do you got? Uh, so I probably have talked about this. I'm sure we've talked about this on the show before. Are but, you sure you're sure? Uh, I'm not sure. But anyway... There's a uh, Microsoft has a great uh, GitHub repo where they put their Microsoft Cloud Workshop MCW, huh. and this is 35 uh, scenarios that include whiteboard sessions and hands-on labs. Wow! For all sorts of cloud stuff, and uh, I could read them all off, but blockchains in there, Azure Stacks in there, modernization containers. Uh, lifting and shifting Linux, lifting and shifting microservices architecture, uh, DevOps, security, like it, just about everything that you can do. Uh, and there's step by step hands on labs that you can, anybody can just go do. Wow. It will keep you busy for weeks, months, maybe even years. Well, 35 workshops, man. That's just a lot. Yep. That's amazing. Yep. It's good stuff. Nice find. And, uh, I'm using it myself right now to brush up on some. DevOps and container stuff, and that's very cool. Cool. Yeah. Good one. Love it. There you go. Know and learn and love it. Who's talking to us today, Richard? We grabbed a comment off of show 1517, the one we did back in February of 2018, with one Daniel Roth and Steven Sanderson. Oddly enough, we were talking about Blazor. <laughs> so, you know, about a year ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We had a conversation, because this thing's been going on for a little while now. Yep. We keep, we keep talking about it. This comment comes from Chris Horton, so this is from about a year ago, so yep. when the show came out. So this was a very interesting episode. One area that immediately springs to mind where there can be great advantage in having the same language available in both the front and back end, so obviously C-sharp running everywhere, mm -hmm. is validation. Right. As we know, you should be validating inputs on the client to assist with application flow and usability purposes and responsiveness and so forth, but also validating on the back end because people are evil. <laughs> uh, well, for security purposes and controls, right? Having common validation. So imagine building one library that does your validation, runs both places, mm -hmm. so it's literally the same code. Um, seems like a great way to reduce the amount of code you need to write, maintain consistency around, do testing on. 
Uh, so keep up the great work. I'm very interested to see where C Sharp and the Blaze and Blazer end up. Yeah. Well, then let's keep talking about let's it. I think talking. we've got a plan. Yeah. So, Chris, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code Buy is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code Buy, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on Facebook. We publish every show there. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code Buy. And send us a tweet. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. We'll go down a blaze of glory. I don't know. <laughs> a blazer of glory? Really? Uh, yeah, You're going like to go that. there? Okay. <laughs> uh, oh, my goodness. Sorry. Uh, you know, sometimes I just got nothing. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let me introduce our guest today. Uh, Dan Roth. He's, both of these guys have been on the show before, of course. Uh, Dan is a principal program manager on the ASP.NET team at Microsoft. And Steve Sanderson's working as a developer for Microsoft and the team that brings you the ASP.NET technology stack, IIS, and other web things. Previously, he developed .NET software as a contractor consultant for clients in Bristol, UK, and beyond, plus wrote some books for A-Press, such as Pro, ASP.NET, MVC Framework. From time to time, he speaks to user groups and conferences like NDC, and recently has been running a bunch of training courses on topics like C-Sharp, SQL Server, and, of course, ASP.NET, MVC. Uh, also, you guys are working on Blazor, and uh, that's what we're here to talk about. And it's been a year since we've talked about blazer what's new uh, how could it have been so long already we Where just started we start? <laughs> it must be done now right yeah. are you done oh man we have we have made some progress yes we've come actually quite a, a long way like we actually just this week announced uh that razor components is shipping with dotnet core 3.0 oh nice. and razor components i know that sounds like a different thing like why, why is it even relevant but razor components really is blazer components that we are now shipping and productizing. So okay. a big chunk, actually, of Blazor is now in a shipping train, is going to be released, and something that you can use in production software. I mean, for a long time, Blazor was this experimental product. I mean, initially, it was an open-source project that Steve had, but then when it moved to ASP.NET, that repository were like, wait, like, oh, hang on, just an experiment. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it was at a conference just like this one. Just that, oddly enough. Like an NDC. That- uh, yeah, it was NDC Oslo when you first talked about this thing that would become Blazor. I don't think it was even named that yet. And I and David Fowler was there, and I think he was physically holding his skull, yeah, so that he wouldn't his head wouldn't burst, right? Because I think we could believe what we were seeing. Yeah, yeah. that was a that was a fun thing. Yeah, and it's but it's I mean it's come obviously you changed the 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 underlying version of .NET you switched to Mono. That's right. Yeah, it's still Mono. Well, actually, uh, that first demo it was uh, it was DNA. It was this .NET Anywhere runtime. That mm-hmm. I, think, I think you found it on GitHub someplace. Yeah. It was some guy. Well, I think he's like I think he's at Google now. He had written uh, an IL interpreter in in C code. Yeah, and uh, I think it was uh, yeah. That's right. That was demo. Chris Bacon wrote that. He's it was an amazing accomplishment, really. That just one guy was able to create this, you know, very functional .NET runtime in you know. F- few hundred C files just by himself. Wow. Made it work. It actually ran real code. I mean, I don't think it was ever really used for anything in any serious production capacity, but, you know, to be able to make that is quite impressive. And yeah, that was definitely the thing that made it possible to get started. That was started. sort of the proof of concept that it could be done. Yeah, absolutely. You, you saw the possibilities there, implementing all the base class libraries on top of that and everything absolutely. else. Absolutely, yeah. And then the world was like blown away and <laughs> and that, it was later that we then uh, moved to mono. Right. You know, uh, Miguel, I well, think, I, saw I, Steve's demo and said, this WebAssembly thing is going to be something and uh, announced that the mono guys were going to support WebAssembly with, uh, with their mm. runtime. Mm. And I swear the conversation about Blazor and mono happened on Twitter. 
Like I seem to recall, I don't know if you remember, Steve, like were you guys going back and forth in other mediums as well? Or did you just chat about it on Twitter and then off it went? I I honestly don't really even remember. It just feels like the, the dog long ago history. Long, to me. Yes. Just, That's at least a year ago. Maybe, yeah, maybe two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was February that we kicked off the official experiment. Right. Where we said, okay, let's take this. Of, this of 18. Yeah. 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 Okay. Not of this year, of previous year, about a year ago. Yeah. Uh, let's take this, this prototype that Steve wrote for an NDC demo that mm. uh, blew David Fowler's mind. And yeah. let's, let's see if this is something we can make real. Let's see if we can, uh, prove out the technology. Like, is, is WebAssembly really going to be an appropriate, uh, compilation target? Something that we can use for running .NET code on. And let's see if it's something that people actually want. Like, yeah. is this model even appealing to, to folks? And, uh, so, so before we get, uh, into the update, I want to just sort of clarify to people who have never seen Blazor what the relationship to Razor and Blazor is. Sure. And that's probably why you called it Blazor, right? As a sort of takeoff on Razor. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the idea with Blazor was to create a, a .NET single page application framework. So mm-hmm. you can, you know, build your rich UI applications and run it in a browser on WebAssembly. And, uh, Razor is a syntax that for combining C sharp and HTML. So Razor was a perfect fit for this. If you're going to write a rich web application with C sharp, you're going to need to use C sharp. You're going to need to produce HTML. So, you know, Razor does that and it was perfect. Um, so yeah, it was, it was pretty easy to, um, modify the behavior of the Razor compiler to make it produce, uh, something that we could run in the browser on the client. And because that's such a central part of the program experience, I wanted to come up with a name that uh, had some relationship to Razor. So hence that, that name. Um, but yeah, now, now we're talking about Razor components. Razor components is the, um, is the actual programming model. Um, so that's the, the thing where you create components and you can put components inside each other and you can deal with parameters and they have lifecycle events and all that sort of stuff. The things that the developer is actually building their stuff with every day, the core programming piece, that's what we call Razor components. And that is now, uh, common to, um, both running inside, uh, the browser on WebAssembly as well as running on the server, uh, under normal.net core, uh, which is, which we're shipping pretty soon. So the, the goal is to be able to have, uh, the same syntax that you're used to writing for server side code, just same exact experience on the yeah. browser. Well, same syntax at the level of things like ifs and for eaches and things like that. Okay. But if you go up a level of abstraction to the idea of a component, which is a, a self-contained piece of user interface, which mm. deals with its own events, its own life cycle, its own knowing when to render and that sort of thing. That's a new programming model. Yeah. We didn't have that before on the server in ASP.NET MVC or Razor Pages because there was no meaning to doing anything in a stateful manner on the mm. server. It's just you get a request and you send back some HTML. There's no lifecycle sure, beyond that. Right. But for a rich client application, it's stateful. It exists for as long as the user is there looking at it and clicking mm-hmm. buttons. And so you need to be able to manage events over time. And so that's the new programming model that we've created there. Yeah. And so it's really the client is driving, is maintaining the state and it is making calls as it needs to, to, to render the new things that the customer wants. For client side Blazor, that's right. correct. Yeah. So is Blazor becoming Razor Components? Like this, that name's going away and the new name will be Razor Components? Not quite. So Blazor is the, is the SPAS framework, right? right. It's like Angular. It's like React. It's like okay. Vue. Mm. 
Blazor uses Razor components. Okay. Like you use Razor components in a Blazor app. I think of Blazor as like the hosting model where you're taking Razor components and running them directly in the browser. Okay. But you can run Razor components in other places. Like you can run them on your server with your ASP.NET Core app. Mm -hmm. We call that ASP.NET Core Razor components. And that's what's actually shipping in .NET Core 3.0 because it doesn't require WebAssembly. You can just run on a normal .NET Core runtime. Yeah. Sure. Uh, but Blazor, I still think, is a name in of itself. It's the, you know, the fully client side in the browser programming model. It's the UI framework that you would think of as a parallel to the, the other JavaScript based frameworks. Is there any incentive in Blazor to move from mono to .NET Core? Or is it even feasible? If you mean for within the client? Yes. Um, it's not really feasible unless the Core CLR team decides that they are going to support WebAssembly, okay. uh, which requires a fairly high-level business decision by Microsoft to do that. But there's not really any obvious reason why Microsoft would choose to do that, hmm. because Mono is our uh, preferred uh, .NET runtime for uh, highly portable client scenarios. Right, and it is .NET standard compliant, it so is. it shouldn't yeah. make any difference. Hmm. Absolutely, yeah. So it is the runtime that you'll use if you're doing... Uh, Xamarin, if you're doing Unity for mm. games, mm -hmm. um, and it's a good fit for running on WebAssembly. And the Mono Group is fully committed to shipping this production-grade version of Mono for WebAssembly. So it's the clear choice. I, I think also there's another way to look at that question, which mm -hmm. is not just about like, should Blazor pick .NET Core or Mono. It's really probably more about should .NET Core and Mono get closer together? Like, should there be more things that they actually share so that you don't even really think about them as two different runtimes, you know, by shipped by two different teams of Microsoft? Like, sure. it's all Microsoft now. So yeah, it's part of the fold. Right. Um, and I, I expect that going forward, you will see a lot more of that, that the things that we have in .NET Core, the things that we have in Mono, that those will kind of get put in the same pot. You take the best of each and kind of make them the part of the same story. Um, right. They're already doing things like that. Like the Mono guys are taking code from the CoreFX repo that's used for .NET Core and bringing that into Mono as part of their BCL implementation. Yeah. And I expect you'll see more and more of that because there's no reason to have two implementations of effectively no. the same thing. Right. You really just need one. Well, yeah. and that's always the argument. It's like, could we all consolidate on Core? But like I said, the... In some ways, Mono is no more, you know, Core may run on, on Linux and, and Windows, but Mono is at a different level of portability again. Yep, that's right. Right. And, it, and, it, and part of that, I think, is WebAssembly depends fairly heavily on, on C constructs, lives, the, the, the WebAssembly space is a, a, you, you import from through. Yeah, yeah. Power. So they achieve their whole compilation to WebAssembly through the mscript and toolchain, which, um, compiles C and C++ right. and other you know, Clang-based um, compilation formats. So, yeah, that they were in a much better position to move on that, and and they have, and that's great. It works great. Uh, just another fundamental question here. Is there, and I think I know the answer to this, but there's nothing keeping somebody using Blazor with other binding UI binding frameworks, right? Like uh, React or Angular. Do they work together? Do they play nice? Is there any reason why you would do that? It's an interesting question. I haven't really heard of people saying that they are doing that or would want to do that. And and I'm not completely sure what the scenarios would be. I, c I right. suppose I could imagine someone who's already got an Angular or React application and saying, yeah. well, can I start to put some Blazor components in this? Mm -hmm. um, and the answer to that would be, absolutely, sure you can. There's nothing, right. you know, Blazor is just a client-side technology. It doesn't require you to have .NET on the server or anything like that. You can mm -hmm. bring in the uh, blazor.webassembly.js bootstrapping right. 
uh, script into any website and it can work. But if you have a greenfield application, you're going to use Blazor and you're pretty much going to use that. I would hope that for any greenfield scenario, there's nothing that's so much missing from Blazor that you need to be combining it with a right. completely different... Yeah, what are you looking for data binding-wise that isn't already there? Yeah, sure. I mean, and the whole idea of the value you're getting from Blazor is that you get to write.net code. Mm-hmm. If you yes. are having to combine this with some JavaScript or TypeScript or something, you mm-hmm. are losing a lot of that benefit. What's the what's the calling look like between the JavaScript space and the and the Blazor space? We've got APIs on both sides. Yeah, okay. So on the .NET side, we've got a, a service called IJS Runtime that you can inject into your components, and that gives you a method called invoke and invoke async that allows you to call into JavaScript. Mm-hmm. And the runtime deals with all the serialization of the data as it passes from .NET world into JavaScript world and back mm-hmm. again. Uh, and then on the JavaScript side, there's some similar APIs that you can call. Um, so it's absolutely works. There's nothing to stop you from doing it, but it's it's not as fun as just having .NET. Living purely .NET. in .NET. Yeah. Mm. Is it a UI limitations? Are we looking for more UI components in Blazor? Is, it, is, that, a, is that not a strength yet? Um, so if you want to use some third-party UI component right. that you don't want to write yourself, uh, so an example would be, say, a mapping component. Like, it's mm-hmm. a complex thing. You yeah. Know, you don't want to write that. Sure. So, Hell, just a grid. I mean, they're not, I mean, we've all made yeah. them, but I don't want to own that code. I really don't. Yeah, okay. So on the grid side, um, we are working towards the point where it would be so productive that you would, could easily write your grid yourself. Mm-hmm. But having said that, there are still going to be... Yeah, the mapping component scenario. Yeah, mm. yeah, and there's going to be, back on the grid, there's going to be third-party uh, control vendors who will make a better grid than you're ever going to yeah, make. Yeah, I think Telerik's already announced Razor components. Yeah, they announced yeah. the support yeah. for Blazor apps. And, That's great. Uh, they have a, a grid, and a, a, I think they have a couple other components that they also mm-hmm. announced as well. And that's what you guys were talking about a year ago, is that that's where you saw it going, is opening up this whole new ecosystem of component vendors. Yeah, that yeah. started to happen. So, um, so yeah, I would hope that for a lot of your fairly sophisticated UI concerns, you can get some ready-made components that just keep you in the Blazor world. If you wanted to reference some third-party JavaScript uh, component that does not have any .NET wrapper for mm-hmm. it, then yes, at that point, you do need to crack open the docs and see how the JavaScript interop works and make calls into the mapping APIs or whatever it is yeah. you want to do. Um, but hopefully, once you've done all that, you can put your code in a NuGet package and publish it and mm. start making a name for yourself as an open source. Yeah, I started to think about the HTML5 constructs like Canvas and doing 3D rendering, utilizing GPU, and wondering how we get at that from yeah. from Blazor. Anything that you can do in JavaScript, you can do from a Blazor app. Right. You can go through the JavaScript interop layer, or you know, most of the time, someone's already done that for you. Like Canvas, there are already community projects where people have taken the Canvas API wrapped it in the Blazor JavaScript interop abstractions right. and then shipped it as a NuGet package so you can just install a NuGet package and interact and with it. And then Canvas. you're just writing C Sharp and you get access to that. Now, Canvas is a little bit of a awkward scenario with Blazor because if you're trying to write like, you know, highly optimized graphics code yeah, in 3D C Sharp code, stuff. like 3D rendering stuff, I mean, the Blazor code is running currently on this like, uh, it's an IL interpreter effectively running on WebAssembly. So right. the performance for that type of scenario is probably not what Blazor is best suited for, at least not yet. In the future, we hope that we'll be able to take your C Sharp code and give you an option to uh, ahead of time compile it all the way down to WebAssembly so you can get like near native performance right. even for your code written in C Sharp. But we're not, we're not quite at that stage yet. Uh, but just in general, if, if there's a JavaScript API you want to call, there's a good chance that someone's already 
tried it and written a, a NuGet package with a, the JavaScript interrupt code already done for you. Which says a lot. But it's an interesting thought that, I mean, right now you li- you are sending IL down to the browser and the browser is jitting it effectively. It's sort of jitting it. It's, it's running an, it's jitting the interpreter and then it's running the, your code through the interpreter. Right. But we could get to a point where maybe that's a development mode and then you, you have a finish mode where compile it right down. Yep. Or, or we actually imagine it'll probably more like a mixed mode. Like there mm. uh, will be some IL in your app still, and then mm-hmm. there'll be some hot paths that you have pre-compiled down to WebAssembly because those paths need to be really, really yeah, fast. Pretty optimal. Sure. I mean, why wouldn't you want everything that way if, if it's just a button for us to push? That's a good question. You know, we, we've been experimenting with that. We were wondering that same question ourselves. Like, right. could you just compile everything down to WebAssembly? Um, the Mono guys have actually been experimenting with that a lot and building out the, the ahead-of-time compilation technologies. Right now, what it looks like is you do get the performance. Mm-hmm. Like, it goes fast, but the size tends to bloat. Like, it gets pretty It gets bigger. Big. Interesting that it would get bigger. Yeah, that's that's not that surprising. Like okay. if you look at like NGen or cross-gen technologies in .NET, like the NGen images, I believe for like the .NET framework are are pretty big. I think, I think I last I heard they were like one of the biggest components, if not the biggest component in mm. Windows. Wow. Um, so yeah, when you when you take the .NET code and and pull it all the way down to native, it does tend to expand in size. And it's probably if you did that with a whole app, it would probably be too big than what you want to download over the web. Right. So we think there's probably a a trade-off where you you do that for the hot pass, and the rest of it you leave as IL during development. I think you're right that you yeah. leave everything probably. IL, but so just from a size right perspective, if you don't care about the performance there, stick it in IL because you're trading time for size. Yep. There's also the build time trade-off as well. Like hmm. doing the full compilation all the way down to WebAssembly, um, at least so far as what we've seen, it, t- it tends to take longer. But we're not taking days. No, but you don't want to wait like 30 seconds to wait, see like a UI update in the browser. Oh, yeah, from, from a development perspective, definitely. Yeah, but this yeah. idea that I develop it in IL mode, get to a certain point, and then go, okay, cast it to native. And I'll go get a coffee yep. if I have to. But not if it turns into something that's 10 megs and, and you know, you're crippling the network every time a guy grabs a exactly. page. Trade-offs there. Well, we trust you guys to do the right thing. <laughs> um, do we? M- do we? Okay. <laughs> MVVM friendly, are we? Absolutely. I mean, we actually try to be pretty non-opinionated about which uh, which pattern you want to do. Like, if you want to do MVVM, great. Like, like there are people that have built those patterns on top of the core Blazor abstraction. If you mm-hmm. want to use a different pattern, you can you can do that. Um, we've tried to keep it sort of agnostic at that layer, much like great. React is kind of that way. Yeah, like, yeah. React gives you a fairly simplistic view of the world and says, you know, whatever you want to do, just do it on top of this. Blazor is very similar. Great. You guys aren't alone going to WebAssembly now, right? I mean, the, the Go guys are there. Who else has come in? Like, are you starting to see some other languages? Oh, yeah. Well, I think Rust is probably the one who have made the biggest amount of noise about it. And, of course, Rust is also from Mozilla, who are basically responsible for WebAssembly as well. Right. So, that's, so that, that sort of makes sense. sense. Um, and Rust has said that they want to be the language for the web. Mm-hmm. Now, that's quite a bold uh, objective. Um, but, you know, good luck to them. So they're, they're doing pretty good in terms of having a good tool chain for... This, but Rust will also run on the server as well. I mean, part of the part of this whole behavior is I want to unify my language. I don't like having a front-end language and a back-end language. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's all, it's, I mean, that, as long as they've got strength on both ends, 
then yeah, I'm all over it. There, there are other applications of WebAssembly that are, are more about like I have native components that I just want to reuse. Yes. Um, so in those cases, often it's C and C++ code that you're dealing with. Right. Like the AutoCAD guys, they had their core rendering engine, which was written, I don't know how long ago. Decades. Mm. Literally decades. Literally decades. Yeah. Before I was born. Maybe. <laughs> <No>. uh, <laughs> C and C++. But they, they took that code and, and the, um, that C and C++ was the first languages that were targeted really by, by WebAssembly. Right. And they compiled it to WebAssembly and now they have AutoCAD Web where you can do full 2D rendering of, uh, AutoCAD designs in a browser. Well, and thank goodness for that because those guys seem like one of the apps that was just, I deal with IT people who have to live with AutoCAD and it's like the bane of their existence. Really? <laughs> but they're, co- you know, this is a company that does like highways and bridges. Their company operates off the back of AutoCAD. Like it's not optional. And the fact that it's like, yeah, we keep a couple of Win 7 machines around because this customer uses this version of AutoCAD and it just never made it past Win 7. So, I mean, so that, that was what, the lives they live. What about graphics in C Sharp and Blazor on, in the browser? Um, should Adobe be scared or that should they be converting? Uh, should they write Photoshop in Blazor? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they should. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, Is there any reason why they couldn't? So for for doing all the menus and the toolbars and things like that, Blazor would be a good fit for that. Mm. Uh, for doing the actual, uh, all the image effects that they do, and, and they've got some really high-tech stuff now. It's all neural networks and such that yeah. they're that running inside Photoshop. Uh, running that on top of .NET Core on top of an interpreter, I would say is probably not what they're going to want to do. But could they but ship those things size. off as services? And uh, Yeah, they could do that. Uh, they could do that on the server. If that would be an to. easy way to maintain control of it, you know. But this is this is moved towards this idea of I'm just not going to install mach- software on my machines anymore. Everything simply comes to me through the browser. Right? Does Windows team hate you guys? <laughs> <laughs> is there a Windows team? Oh, did I say that out loud? That's not right. Okay. I mean, Windows has already ha- always had this interesting relationship with web. I think sure. in, in, just in general. Uh, but I think Microsoft in general has a understanding that web matters. Like yeah. we, we, we care about having a good web development experience and web running experience. We ship, we ship a browser. Right. Well, although we work although that's having a whole interesting <laughs> conversation. <laughs> well, I'm not going to drag you into that conversation, <laughs> but believe me, that show is brewing in the back of my head. Yeah, How are we going to talk about this? <laughs> yeah. But it is interesting. I mean, it is interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm firmly wearing my IT hat right now as I live in that world too. And this whole idea that I never have to give permission to new software anymore that the the rights of the browser are the limits of all software going forward it's remarkably compelling from an mm. IT perspective mm. i think there's also this uh, this move as web moves closer to things that you can do in what you would think of as a traditional desktop application sure. like P- pwas come to mind yeah. as an example yeah. of this like web apps that can work offline you talk about like in, in, you no longer have to install the app anymore because it's a web app well with some web apps that are PWAs, they, they can go through the Microsoft store and be installed, installed on a machine right. as a, a PWA. And then at that point, because they came through the store, I believe Windows has features where they can like call WinRT APIs and get even yeah. access to more native capabilities because they've gone through that path. Well, and the PWAs are a set of APIs as well that allow for disconnected states and all of those good things. So we're starting to have a suite that says, what is it in a smart client you need to do that I can't do in these models? Mm. 
They, 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 that's a great question. You know, there, there's, there, at least historically, there's always been some stuff that sure. you wanted to do that was very specific to the hardware that you're on or yeah. the OS platform that you're on and that the web just hasn't caught up to yet. Yeah. No, introduce a scanner to the equation or some other third party piece of hardware. Like, and there are workarounds for all of that, but these are the kind of battles that we get into. Right. But also just different hardware footprints. Like browsers work in some contexts, but they don't work in every context. But boy, there's a lot of forms over data where you're thinking, why? Well, we were already building them in MVC and, and knockout and sort of traditional web means because they were no install footprints. Like that mattered a lot. And all the data is being stored in the back end anyway. I, I think people would also be probably surprised about what browsers are now capable of doing these days also. I, I mean, Steve's original talk uh, where he, he introduced Blazor, that was a talk about, you know, here's some stuff that browsers can do that you might not know about. And WebAssembly right. was, was one of those things. Uh, we did a demo uh, earlier this week at a Blazor workshop that we did uh, where I showed using the JavaScript interop calls from a Blazor app to um, take an image and make it full screen. And oh, wow. I, and I showed that to David Fowler as well. And he's like, that's it. Native apps, they're, they're you don't doomed. need them anymore. It, you can um, do full screen from a browser. Like, <laughs> Well, and, and but plus the modern, the, the HTML5 DOM is like, you've got access to GPS. You've got access to cameras. Like an awful lot Even of these audio. core capabilities. You've right. got access to the audio stack. Now you do. Like bit by bit, we have a fairly good grip on the hardware through the context of the browser. Even the file system in most browsers. You know, the yeah, file it's like, yeah. It's, it's, it's restricted. You can store stuff. Now you can read, write. I mean, you have your sandbox, but you yeah. can absolutely manipulate files mm-hmm. with the file API. The problem is not all the browsers support it yet. I still, even though there's this expanding core of mm-hmm. web functionality that you can now use, there's still this border, and depending on the platform, that border is thicker or thinner than the, uh, on what you're, depending on what you're using. That yeah. is sort of the native app realm where you're like, if you if you need stuff in this region, then you're going to be writing a native app because sure. you really need that native feel and those native capabilities. Yeah. But man, you guys are making it uh, hard on us. I mean, <laughs> not on us, but on the you know. Um, by the way, that the the workshop that we taught this week it was uh, it was pretty fun. Like we we built like a pizza store app mm-hmm. uh, in in Blazor, uh, and that's now publicly available. If people want to go through that workshop, it's at uh, aka.ms/blazorworkshop. It's just right. a GitHub repo. You can download, install the the different labs, and then try it out yourself. Yeah, Love if you it. can convince your boss to let you have a day or two off to uh, go through it, you'll become a Blazor expert pretty quickly. That's a great way to learn. So where where are we right now with Blazor? I mean, this is a Blazor update. Yeah. What, to, what is left to do? And maybe you should say what has been accomplished first. So we, we are just shipped Preview 2 of .NET Core 3.0. That had the first Razor components drop that's actually in .NET Core. So you can start playing around with that. That has the Razor component model. The tooling for Razor components, and hence also for Blazor apps, uh, is now in Visual Studio 2019. So you no longer need to install a V6, mm. uh, or a Visual Studio extension on top of Visual Studio to get the Blazor tooling. It's in the box now. Nice. Uh, also, in parallel with each .NET Core release, we will be shipping Blazor updates. You know, so updates to the Blazor templates, updates to the the, the Blazor specific runtime pieces, and we we plan to do that with every release of .NET Core. So with Preview Three, Preview Four, whatever, there'll be a corresponding Blazor release. Uh, it won't be final when .NET Core 3.0 is done, but sometime later, we hope to then have the WebAssembly runtime done and then ship Blazor as a supported spa.net framework. That's awesome. Uh, guys, hold that thought for just a minute while we take a moment for this very important message. Hey, Carl here. So we're at one show per week until further notice. 
I'm sure that's a relief for some of you, but uh, for others, that's just not enough. Well, the only way we can get back to two shows a week is if we significantly increase our Patreon pledges. That's just the way it goes. So think about becoming a .NET Rocks patron, like Craig Thatcher. Thanks, Craig. Make a pledge today at patreon.netrocks.com. And thanks. All right, and we're back. It's .NET Rocks. That's Richard Campbell. I'm Carl Franklin. Steve Sanderson and Dan Roth are here. We're talking about Blazor. Uh, currently what's coming in the box. And uh, I mean, I don't know if you were done with that list, but uh, if you are, we can maybe talk about what's left to do. Well, that's that's sort of the schedule, like when we expect to do updates. Okay. I guess the other interesting question is like, what's going to be in those updates? Like yeah, what other yeah. features are we actually working on and what do we plan to, to do next? Um, I think you uh, were talking earlier about uh, uh, validation and doing sure. uh, like uh, validation reforms and those types of scenarios. That's one area that we know we want to invest in. Uh, we also want to make it uh, really seamless to use Razor components uh, from your existing MVC and Razor Pages applications. So if you have a, a view or a page and you want to render a Razor component within that page, that's something we will enable you to do. Um, that, that component also we'd like to be able to be interactive and all those things and have the same syntax and tooling that you get with Blazor apps and Razor component applications. Mm. Uh, other things? Yeah, we, we need to, uh, provide a, a really straightforward and useful way of dealing with authorization and authentication. Mm -hmm. At the moment, we've just got a bunch of patterns that we talk about, but there's nothing really built into the system to help you with it. So we don't want to just leave people on their own. We want to give them a, you know, a sensible set of tools to deal with that. Uh, another thing is the server-side pre-rendering feature, uh, which we have not had yet, but is just about uh, ready to release. And you're pre-rendering HTML. So yeah, that's right. right. So, yeah, so that means that instead of the the application UI not appearing when the person first goes to your page and then having to wait for it to download the, the runtime and start up and everything, which can take a second or two seconds or so, uh, that they just see the UI straight away. It may not be functional yet, but immediately render while the rest is loading and all the, the buttons sort of engage. Yeah, and it means that your application is fully search engine crawlable as well. Right, which is the important part. And I love a pre-render just from like landing pages and SEO stuff. Like yeah. It makes it very easy to have that happen. I think there'll be some good UI tricks where it's like, hey, keep those buttons disabled until your code's finished running and can switch them on so that users aren't getting frustrated clicking on the buttons. Right. Not that I would know anything about that. But, you know, it's just, it, it is interesting to think, like, everybody does their work on a flipping LAN, and it's so instant, they never think, hey, look, back out here in the real world, where we have network speed and latency that matters, give us cues that you're not done yet. Give us a uh, spinning wheel of patience. Yeah. Get it, give us the spinning wheel of patience. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do like just that the buttons stay disabled in the moment the pages finish working buttons light up and you're like, oh, I'm alive. I, I like some indication that something is happening. Yeah, I'm trying. I just don't like, I don't like a disabled screen with nothing else yeah. because then I don't know if it's going to stay disabled. How, how well does this stuff work in a phone? Uh, well, it does work on phones in, in that uh, both iOS and Android have uh, had support for WebAssembly for quite yeah. some time now. Uh, so your applications will work just as much as they're going to work in a desktop browser. Mm. Um, the kind of challenges that you're going to face are that a lot of mobile phone users are going to have a much, much slower network than yes. people on a desktop. And, and responsive web design still matters. Yeah, absolutely. The screens are a completely different shape. So but mm. there's nothing specific to Blazor in that. But sure. certainly if you just build some line of business application without thinking about a 
small phone size screen, it's yeah. probably not going to be a super experience. Well, and we've been arguing that sort of mobile first mindset, especially if it's consumer facing, because that's how they're coming to you. But I think it's a trick to, to when you're coding Blazor to think in terms of make sure the responsive design is correct, like just the way that you build pages. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, the way that uh, we've got Razor components running on the server working uh, means that the application can, in some cases, be a lot faster to show up and more responsive on a mobile right. than a traditional uh, client-side framework uh, because all of the code stays completely on the server and we're just shipping the UI down over the channel to the browser. So it's a very thin client scenario. So if you've got someone with a really old mobile phone with a slow CPU, uh, you know, we're just relieving the phone of all the work that it would have had to do besides the actual HTML rendering. Right. Sort of modernized thinking of we're going to have to to wedge our way through some of this stuff. Maybe some features don't run because the machine's just not the phone's got the guys got the clout. Yeah, you've got you've got the control to decide what's going to run where. Yeah, if you're going to be clever enough. Do we do we talk about XAML? like an alternative to HTML in terms <laughs> of rendering? We can talk about it. absolutely. So, I mean, there are folks, of course, that ask us. Actually, we get the question. We just want Silverlight back, right? Yeah, like, can, can, we just, can we have Silverlight back, <laughs> or please? You, or even folks that will ask us, like, I have this WPF app yeah. or WinForms app, and um, I, I need to modernize it somehow. Can you help me get it to the web? Can you just make the XAML stuff work so I don't have to rewrite it and mm-hmm. get it working in the browser? Um, Good that's, luck with that. Holy man. <laughs> <laughs> Although there was a, a guy that I think that tweeted out fairly recently where he was able to get WinForms apps in some, some form running on WebAssembly in a browser. Like he had like a calculator. Oh my goodness. It was pretty cool. Yeah, I would love to see that. Yeah. Uh, but I, think I saw that. It's not, it's not really our, our like we work on ASP.NET. Like yes. we, we work for uh, the web. Yeah. And so our goal is to make a really great web framework. We're targeting web developers, people who have some familiarity with HTML and CSS. Maybe not familiarity with, with C Sharp and .NET, but there are people that are looking for an alternative to JavaScript that will be productive and stable and something that's not going to change every three months and have a great tooling and, yeah. and all those things. Um, for XAML, uh, we don't plan to build a XAML stack on top of WebAssembly with Blazor, right. but that doesn't mean you can't. Miguel might. Uh, Miguel might. Uh, the, the runtime certainly can run whatever. It just runs .NET code. And so people in the community have already been uh, working on projects to get various XAML-based stacks running in the browser. Um, you mentioned Miguel, like uh, Frank, Frank Kruger uh, has been working on a project called We. Or like the French spelling. Yeah, uh, yeah, we've done a show with them. Yeah, yeah, so great stuff. It's basically cool. Xamarin Forms running in the browser. He he does the same two models that we have with Blazor. He he actually did the server side model before um, Blazor, I think, even existed, where mm. you could run Xamarin Forms on the server, and then he manages the UI updates over a WebSocket connection. After the WebAssembly runtime came out, he then also supported that as well. Hey, it's Prodigy all yeah. over again. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, the Uno guys, uh, yeah, Uno platform, yeah, they they great talk, show with those guys talk too. To them as well. UWP yeah. in so the browser. Smart. And there's another one called, uh, I've I seen called Frog UI. I know, I know less about them, but it's, it looks like, at least they advertise as basically WPF model or Silverlight model running in the browser. So there's, oh. there's a bunch of community efforts to try and do other things with .NET and UI frameworks in the browser, which I think is great. Like it just awesome. shows the potential of the technology. But I also think it speaks to the struggle that we're all trying. There isn't an ideal UI or we'd all be using it. You know, that, that, that it is an interesting challenge. And, you know, we're also sort of skirting around this whole, there are different flavors of XAML in the world, too. Yeah, like the UWP approach, which I think the UNO guys have shown extraordinary potential with, 
is not exactly the same as the WPF approach. That's true. And I, I think there is, you know, independent of, you know, what audience you're coming from, like, are you a WPF person or a HTML person? Um, I do think there is this desire to have just something that's this, at least the same. Right. Like, yeah. it'd be nice if I could have one UI that I've written to some extent that I can now run in all the places. I want to be able to run it on a desktop. I want to run it in the browser. I want to run it on mobile. Like, I need to write an app. It needs to be in all those three places. Yes. Do I really need to learn a different UI stack for all three? Uh, I mean, one answer for that could be, well, if you're on the standards train, then you would say, well, HTML, you can just use for everything there. But uh, for some people, I think that's less palatable and they'd like something a little different. And, and maybe there's an opportunity there. Don't, don't know. I'm not, that's just, yeah. uh, I've, I've observed that at least there's that desire. Yeah. Have a common application model across all the platforms. Well, and it is the subtle differences that get people, right? Like it's a UI, especially just the battle of rendering. You know, there's a reason Xamarin had their, and I guess you guys now have their whole with the, with the test farm, because you literally just wanted to see how does this web page or this Xamarin app render on all these different phones? Yeah, it's a very difficult problem to solve. Most teams in out there in the world are not going to be in a position to really verify that, that how their application looks on a on a wide range of devices, well, or or to be able three. to. <laughs> well, yeah, even three is going to be a challenge. Yeah. Um, and often developers are not really minded to notice small details as well. Like no. if something's off by one pixel, they'll be like, oh, they're never going to see I've it. got better things to do than definitely. But all, but it also just render functionality too. Like often it, it, I've seen mechanisms where people have rendered a button in a way that on this particular phone, that button doesn't function. Right. Yeah. And they, yeah. It's, you pretty much are waiting till the customer complains. Like to actually test to the point where you know all my buttons work, all of these behaviors work, these things are on the right place. It's just not a trivial commitment. Um, let's get back to uh, what's in the box and what's not. Um, are, uh, are there things that people may be surprised about that are not implemented yet? Um, things that you're anticipating hearing about? So at least initially, if you start playing around with the Razor component support in 3.0, yeah. um, things that we still need to do there that will be pretty important, like the managing of the connection between the, the browser and the server. Mm. If that connection goes down right now, there's it's it's down and your UI stops working and there's no infrastructure in place yet to help you reestablish the connection and deal with state. Um, that's all work that we plan to do, but it's We're not used in to this that, preview. Use <laughs> browsers. And this is where PWA is coming. Like, there could be a server. There is a service worker for that. Yeah, true. You could you could potentially leverage that in these applications as well. Yeah. So that's work that just that we need to do. Um, I don't know what else would not in the box yet that that people will surprise people. I'm not sure to be honest. I suppose we don't have anything that really helps you to to manage the state of a large application. Mm -hmm. So we don't really have anything which is like, oh, here's where your data goes, here's where you uh, call the server, here's where you check if you're online and all that kind of stuff. Like this is all where... You can code that yourself. Yeah, There's no reason I, you couldn't do it. I was going to say that, yeah. We're, yeah. we're used to writing that kind of stuff. But anyway. it is up to us as developers to get to a place where somebody can accidentally close this app, come back in and you carried the state forward because you've been keeping our scratch pad or something and recognize, oh, it's the same instance, maybe drop them back where they were. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, all that stuff. Um, and then I, the thing we've mentioned before with like validation support, like mm -hmm. obviously that's super critical for almost every single application. Sure. Uh, and we have not got anything. With that, but we've got some designs. We've made prototypes. We, we know what we're going to do. You also mentioned um, security authentication yeah, authorization. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're building a MVC app. That sort of stuff is done automatically for you with authorized yeah. um, attributes that isn't going to work in the 
Well, so is that what you want to happen or? Well, okay. So if you are building a, a web application that is going to connect to some backend server, then all of your real security is on the server. Of right, course, like, right. you know, the UI, it changes its what options get displayed to the user depending on like who's logged in, but that's just a courtesy to the user. It's not, yeah. it's not enforcing anything. Um, so when it comes to the real security, still on your server, you're still going to use all the same things, you know, authorized attribute, whatever else you're already using. Right. But that's, but you still need to be able to get this information into the client application. Like, is the user logged in? Who's logged in? What options should they have available? You know, if the server says they, they make a request to the server to say, you know, save changes to this thing and the server says, nope, you're not allowed, then can we capture the, rejection in a sensible way so that you can display some message to say, hey, you know, you can't do this or you need to log in now, all that kind of stuff. So managing uh, UI flows with respect to authorization is a, is a different problem to solve than sure. what the server is yep, solving. sure is. Well, and we, those things exist. They've been built before. We just got to get them running in this particular context, right? Yeah, yeah there, there are patterns, yeah. yeah. We we're in a new platform and just got to fill in all the bits for the platform. Mm -hmm. I think tooling is another area that we'll be investing in quite a bit, mm. um, particularly cross-platform tooling. Like right now, we have a, a pretty good experience in Visual Studio. Right. We'd like to have that same experience in Visual Studio for Mac, right. in Visual Studio Code. Yes, I mean, most, most front-end web devs these days are living in Visual Studio Code, honestly, and we'd right. like to meet them where they're at. Uh, we've actually started work on getting good razor tooling into Visual Studio Code. Like a, some of the uh, C Sharp extension updates that recently happened have included some new bits for for razor at least. Hmm. And it's upon that found foundation that we'll then start building out razor component support and also Blazor support, so that you can get the same component IntelliSense completions and diagnostics uh, within Visual Studio Code. And certainly, my experience, you guys really only pour energy into tooling when you're pretty confident what your platform is going to look like. So you you're happy. You We're know, pretty happy. Yeah. With where <laughs> Blazor is. Well, and, you know, coming up with Razor components is just like, this feels more and more like a product. And now that they hear you sit, talking about energy on tooling means you're not about to break your stuff. We, 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 we hope not. I mean, yeah. the, it's like you, like you said, it's been a year that yeah. we started this experiment. So we've had some time to put, put out a whole bunch of updates. Like I think the latest Blazor update is like the seventh release of Blazor sure. that we did. It's been pretty much every other month. I, I, Tweet about it every time a new Blazor version comes along because I yeah. think it's important. And it's uh, it's been it's been pretty gratifying to to do that. Like actually, like like talking with Blazor customers, like people using Blazor for the first time. Even at the workshop here, um, there were folks there that hadn't seen Blazor before, and they were just they were jaw watching their jaws <laughs> drop when they realized that they just built something with C Sharp and .NET that is a rich, interactive client side web application. Yeah. It's super fun. And is WA super consistent? Like, is that just going to work in Chrome, work in Edge, work in Safari? Yeah, yeah. work so in Mozilla. WebAssembly is implemented across all the major browsers. Mm -hmm. Now, if, if you have an older browser that, that there may, you may have some folks that don't have WebAssembly support, that's right. really where the like server side Razor component story can come and can help you out because the same components, they can run on either side sure. of the wire. So wow. you could do things like, well, if, if you support WebAssembly, then we'll give you the WebAssembly version of this app. If you're, if you're an older browser that doesn't have that support, then you can do the Razor components thing. Mm -hmm. I'll just give you a little JavaScript and set up a WebSocket connection with you. And now I'll treat you kind of like a, you know, an old mainframe terminal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're not that bright, but I'll get you through. But I've certainly had conversations with folks that are struggling with PWA implementations in Safari. Like I'm just wondering how symmetrical the implementation really are. Like, are you, are you bumping any edges here? Yeah, well, we would hit the same limitations with a high-level thing like PWAs, right. certainly. Mm -hmm. um, but WebAssembly itself is extremely low-level. It's, it's a set of 
operations on numeric data types. You right. know, the, the, the implementations of it are pretty consistent. Um, or at least that's the case today. That's probably not going to be the case forever. Mm-hmm. Because although WebAssembly version 1 has shipped and everyone's done it and everyone's got basically identical implementation, like I don't think we've ever had an, a situation where something was Just broken. Didn't work. There was, I think Different. there was a brief stint where the Safari browsers were broken because of the uh, Spectre Meltdown fixes right. had broken their WebAssembly support. Oh, yeah, yeah. But they've since fixed those. So yeah. Those, those are yeah. So many interesting So the low-level stuff is generally very consistent. But going forward... Version 2. There's going to be WebAssembly 2. Yeah. And, and it's definitely going to be implemented at different rates. Yeah. So, so yeah. The, so the, the features that are coming into WebAssembly 2 that are really useful for us are mm-hmm. things like uh, threading support. Okay. So the moment your application running on .NET inside the browser does not have threads, it can't run multiple things concurrently. Right. You can still use async, but yeah. the, each of the different callbacks is going to occur one after another rather than right. actually... You're in, never going to have simultaneous callbacks. Yeah, exactly. Um, but if WebAssembly itself gets threads, then we can actually do that. Uh, similarly, at the moment, th- the garbage collection is handled completely separately between JavaScript and inside .NET and WebAssembly. So there's literally two garbage so, collectors? Two different worlds altogether. Yeah. So th- we've got our own memory space for your .NET code. We've got our own heap allocator and garbage collector and so on. And they're just living these separate lives without knowing about each other. But with uh, WebAssembly 2, it's possible to have references from uh, WebAssembly side code into the JavaScript side code, hmm. which means that you could now start allocating memory using the JavaScript memory Now, are they looking at that as an interop possibility or as a memory efficiency? As a, as a first-class way of just... Dealing with memory, so sure. it, rather than allocating, if, you know, 150 bytes in WebAssembly world, you allocate them in JavaScript world, and, and then make you, your your invoke across the JavaScript, and it's yeah. sitting there for them. Yeah, well, hopefully, there's no even uh, sort of invoke APIs that you're going through. It right. just becomes a very uh, baked in, low level way of dealing with memory management. So developers won't see this themselves in their own code. Mm-hmm. It's like the Mono team who are building the Mono WebAssembly runtime they could switch their implementation of memory management. So instead of them doing all their own heap allocation and garbage collection, they could say, all right, we just won't do that anymore. We'll just ask the browser to give us little bits of memory and deal with collecting them later. Mm. And that would, of course, reduce the size of the WebAssembly runtime. Mm -hmm. It would probably improve the performance quite Mm -hmm. a lot. It also helps with certain interrupt scenarios where you want to have a reference from one side to the other. Assuming something, anything got big, the fact that you don't have to pass it is going to make a difference. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. So we're looking forward to those features, but we're not relying on them. Yeah. We are relying only on what has already shipped. What's driving the feature set definitions for WebAssembly? Like, I mean, this can came out of the Mozilla group, but yeah. is there a working group and everybody's getting along? There is a working group. Yeah. yeah. And there are Microsoft's in there. Yeah. The, the, like all the big players are in there. Hence, that's why all the browsers uh, have, have, have been, have been supporting it. But it, it's always a question of do you build something and then show it to the group and, and, Go forward as opposed to we agree on a design, then we go off and implement our own. Yeah, you know, I, I, I uh, neither of us are really directly involved with okay. the, the working group, so uh, don't have a good feel for a lot of the d- dynamics. But I'm super grateful for the work that they've been doing. They've it's, been—it's really—it's very interesting to think about how those decisions are made across these different teams, and certainly watching what happened with with what became ECMAScript mm-hmm. was sort of a—I mean, they tried everything. You do a bunch of definitions and then people build it differently. And so it's like, all these definitions are wrong. And it's like, then each team would build their own version and show them to each other. And then we try to consolidate on some variation. Like, 
it's very, it's not a simple thing to do. You know, it's, it's super easy to, to plan everything in advance and be wrong. Like just come up with a bad design ultimately that is until you actually code it you're like this sucks. Yeah. Uh, as opposed, but if you, everybody just invents their own thing, like you're also wasting a lot of time and in, in creating parochial ownership to features. And I, I, I have been involved in the W3C in the past. Like yeah. I, 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 I don't know if I should admit this in the public forum, but I, uh, <laughs> I did work on WCF and soap services for a while and I was involved in some of the soap protocols. Stuff. My goodness. And wow. it, you, you, at least in the, those of that environment, like there was actually a lot of, you know, companies building out the, the feature first and, tr- and really proving it out in the stack before it even came to the right. working group. And that, that was always incredibly helpful because it grounded the design in some bits that were actually real. Yeah. And, and any luck you had a few beta testers that weren't your company. So they were giving sort of legit, real legit external feedback. Like you like all of that. It's just that the more energy that's put into that, the more resistant you are to change to something else. That's true. That's, there, there is that. Um, and, but in some sense, that some of that resistance is good. Cause yes. then if you get feature requests or proposals that are changed to design, but they're not grounded in any sort of implementation reality, yeah. it can really quickly actually take the spec off the rails. Sure. Um, so I think the having, you know, you want to be testing, you want to be actually trying it out as opposed to just being in theory land. Yeah, there's no exploration of software that isn't well served by code. I, yeah. I think the WebAssembly group. At least from what I've seen, I, I don't know what strategy they use to for what they've designed, but the stuff that they've been focusing on and the um, the priorities that they've taken have been just great for the web, as far as I can tell. Like, I got to think that these are the same folks that worked on HTML5 in the day, right? And so they 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 feel like a very experienced group of people. The threading, I think, is an example of of a case where it seems like that implementation strategy is actually being put into effect, like mm. Chrome seventy. I think already had the uh, implementation of the threads proposal that's in the WebAssembly sure. working group as a, as a preview feature. And that gives them an opportunity to then, you know, try it out. Does this work? Like what problems are there that can then feed back into the working group? Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah. You know, we were talking about PWAs and, uh, I, I pulled up this blog post from Conrad Mueller that's just from January 18th. Hmm. Create progressive web apps with.net using Blazor. Yeah. And okay. he shows, uh, making a service worker and C sharp and the whole thing. He, because through a whole process he's got a project on github and um better include a link yeah okay. so I, I put that in the links fantastic we'll uh, share yeah. that there's another project called bionic that uh, i think does the uh, similar stuff with being able to build pwas and also being able to target mobile like if you want to nice. have mobile applications yeah, the the blazer community is pretty great they do they do a lot of interesting creative stuff we um we actually maintain a community page on blazer.net uh, blazer.net slash community where we try to highlight as as many of these projects as we can because the, there's a lot of interesting stuff out there it's cool anything surprised you like oh somebody did that yeah i think one of the first things that i that somebody did which you would think is not the first thing at all because it's so unexpected was they made a 3d roller coaster simulator <laughs> what <laughs> You did what? <laughs> wow. That's not a form with data. Like, why did you do that? <laughs> and besides, you're supposed to make Quake first. <laughs> so when will we hear uh, from you guys again? What's your next cycle when we should get back to you? We try to be as public and transparent with everything that we do. So sure. hopefully not not much as a surprise. Um, you know, as the... Uh, you know, the, the standard Microsoft uh, cadence goes along, you know, um, hopefully we'll have more stuff to say at, at, at the next build conference, whenever yeah. that will be. And 
Um, I think spring and fall tends to be a natural cadence for things that, that come out with Microsoft. Right. But I mean, we don't, we're not sitting around and waiting for those things to happen. Like you can just watch the, the GitHub repo where we're now all merged into the same, uh, repo with all the ASP.NET Core code. Everything is now in this, this ASP.NET Core repo and Blazor is in there. Razor components is in there. You can see all of our issues and what's on our backlog and so get, a, cool. get a feel for There's really no secrets anymore. You guys are basically yeah. building stuff in public. That's the goal. And yeah. it, there's a lot of value in doing that because then we get that feedback on, you know, what, what are we doing that's good and what's, what's not. Awesome. Well, we'll catch up to you sometime later this year, I'm sure. But until then, thank you very much for being here. Thank you. Yeah, it's been great talking to you. And this is a fantastic product, revolutionary product as far as we're concerned. Dan, Steve, thanks. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a...